0: Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC. Today I'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and Lord's Day 36 and 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the Third Commandment. The Third Commandment states, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. And from Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 36 and 37. What is the aim of the third commandment? That we neither blasphemy nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we should use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess God, pray to God, and glorify God in all our words and works. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes. Indeed, no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why God commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oaths are grounded in God's word and were rightly used by the people of God in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A legitimate oath means calling upon God as the only one who knows my heart, to witness to my truthfulness, and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. What's in a name? Apparently a lot. According to the movie The Founder, Ray Kroc discovered a name can be worth millions. In 1954, while selling milkshake machines, Ray stumbled upon McDonald's, a fast food burger joint in San Bernardino, California. Ray had spent years traveling across the country. He was used to being served crummy food with long waits at wayside diners. So McDonald's to him was a revelation. After meeting Mac and Dick McDonald, the restaurant's founders, Ray convinces them to franchise. They were hesitant at first, but eventually let Ray figure out how to franchise their fast food restaurant. After moving back to the Midwest, Ray found a winning strategy. He got young middle-class families to open franchises. These young families proved to be committed and hardworking. Soon, McDonald's were opening up all across the Midwest. Despite this success, Ray discovered he wasn't making any money. All the profits were going to the original founders, Mac and Dick. When Ray tried to renegotiate with them, they refused. So Ray played hardball. He created his own corporation that bought up all the land McDonald's restaurants were on. Now these franchises owed rent to this new corporation. Then Ray renamed this corporation, calling it McDonald's Corporation. He stole the name and claimed to be its founder. At one point, Dick, the original founder, asked Ray, why didn't it just steal their idea and name it something else? Why take the name? Because the name McDonald's, Ray discovered, was the true value of the company. It's the name itself that gave the restaurant its value, not the quality of its food or the quick service or the iconic Golden Arches, but the name. It has a sticking power. What's in a name? A lot. Millions. Billions sometimes. Corporations carefully guard and defend their names. Identity theft costs this country billions of dollars each year. Names are worth a lot. Names matter. They carry a lot of meaning, reputation, character, significance. What's McDonald's without its name? Just a crappy burger with some decent fries. It's the name that makes the chain. Which is why Ray Kroc's theft of that name is so appalling. He took someone else's name and used it for his own advantage. He misused the name of McDonald's for his own benefit. He took that name in vain. Ray Kroc could take the McDonald's name in vain and use it for his own purposes, in part because he didn't fear the original founders Mac and Dick. He had more power than them. They couldn't touch him, so he was free to misuse and abuse the McDonald's name by taking it as his own. The third command says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Or as the King James Version puts it, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. As the above illustration indicates, to take a name in vain means to misuse it by using it for your own profit. To take God's name in vain means to misuse it for your own agenda. An example of this misuse of God's name, of taking God's name in vain, is told by the prophet Malachi. During the time of Malachi, about 400 years before Christ, the people were bringing their worst to the temple. The temple was the place where God's name resided. It was the place where they were supposed to bring their best, the first fruit of their crops and livestock. Instead, they were bringing their injured, crippled, and diseased animals, They essentially turned the place where God's name resided into their garbage dump. They misused God's name for their own benefit. The temple turned into a place where they could get rid of their worst livestock and fulfill their religious obligations. But God was terribly angry that his name was being used in vain like that. God said, When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? I am not pleased with you, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Feared among the nations. If you want to use God's name rightly, then fear God. Fearing God is the antidote that will protect us from breaking the third command. The fear of God consists in two stages. The first stage of the fear of the Lord is a fear of God's punishment for our sins. This stage of the fear of the Lord recognizes the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And to quote the catechism, no sin makes God more angry than blaspheming his name. No sin is greater than misusing The name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths. The fear of the Lord recognizes that God can see into my heart and can punish me if I use his name falsely or for my own benefit. But fear of punishment will only get a person so far. The fear of the Lord is meant to move beyond mere fear of punishment from the Lord, it is also meant to include a genuine fear of disappointing the Lord. And this fear is born out of love for God. The more we know God and his love for us, and the more we love God, the more sensitive we are to sin's destructive ways. We realize that sin is very costly. It grieves God. It costs God's son a cruel death on the cross. Sin is painful not only to ourselves, but also God, whose love for us knows no bounds. The fear of God we are called to is the fear of disappointing God, who loves us so dearly. A story that illustrates these two fears comes from my high school soccer days. One of my teammates was caught drinking alcohol. He had to sit out a few games as punishment, among other things. When he was finally able to practice with us again, I remember overhearing him talking with the coach. The coach asked him something to the effect of, what do you regret most? And my teammates reply went something like, I definitely regret having to miss these soccer games. That's the fear of punishment at work. But then he went on to say, but the thing I really regret, the thing that makes me never want to do something this stupid again, was seeing the pain and disappointment in my parents' faces. That was the fear of disappointment. It was born out of his love for his parents. It made him see more clearly than the punishment how bad his failure was and how badly he needed to change. That's what the fear of the Lord calls us to. Not only to recognize that our sin can justly be punished by God, but more importantly, that our sin pains and disappoints God. The fear of God makes us instead to want to use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess his name, pray to him, and praise him in everything we do and say. That is why the fear of the Lord is pressed upon God's people by the teacher of Ecclesiastes. He knows that fear of God alone will keep us from breaking the third commandment. And what he says remains relevant for us today, because using God's name to our own benefit, to enrich ourselves, always remains a temptation." The poet Tsitsi Bunning wrestles with this in his poem, The Sea of Forgetfulness. In this poem, lightly edited for clarity's sake, the main character, Willem, agonizes over who benefited more from his Christian worship, God or himself. From his nursing home bed, he said, And about the tithes. I give, sure, but I envy the Israelites. Priests ate a little of them unblemished lambs, but the rest got burned up, useless to everybody but God. All my giving seems to have been an investment. My wife was in our Christian hospital, and I am in our Christian nursing home. All five children went to our Christian schools, for to our college. Pete got a job with the mission board because he knows languages. Bert took up business, now he's on Synod's budget committee. Lenore teaches philosophy at our college, Jake is a preacher. Now their children are, are in college, and guess what? They all want jobs like it. I tried to give my money to God, but none of it seems to get through. The Christian bubble seems to have benefited Willem pretty well. Now he is beginning to wonder, perhaps too well. Did he use God to enrich himself, he fears? Ancient Israel went to the temple to benefit themselves. Do we ever do the same? God was angry with them. Would he be any happier with us? Against this backdrop, Ecclesiastes has some urgency. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That is, be careful when you go to worship. Be careful when you gather in Christ's name. As Jesus says, wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. As Sidney Gridonis comments, think about what you are about to do. You are going to the house of God. You are going to the place where the almighty creator stoops down to meet you. So guard your steps. Think of Moses meeting God at the burning bush. God said to him, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground so guard your steps." How should we guard our steps? By going near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is hypocrisy. It's offering up our worst or least, but claiming it is our best or the most we can do. It is giving only for show, or worshiping only to impress our neighbor, or praying only to win the praise of man, Worship that ultimately enriches ourselves rather than blesses the least, last, and lost, and glorifies God's name. But God wants us to come into his house ready to learn, slow to speak, quick to listen, in humility, and with a teachable spirit. The teacher of Ecclesiastes reinforces this point with his second point. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Do not be like those who babble on and on, Jesus would later say, who think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Rather, pray by saying, Our Father in heaven. Do not go on babbling, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. few. Fools babble on and on, thinking they can manipulate God by their many words. But in reality, they are just taking God's name in vain. When we gather together to worship, the teacher says, come to listen. Next, use a few words while you pray. Don't babble. Third, keep your vows. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Vows, or oaths, are common in the Bible. As the Catechism states, oaths are approved in God's word and were rightly used by Old and New Testament believers. For example, when Jacob fled from Esau, he made a vow that if God would watch over him and protect him, then he would serve God faithfully the rest of his life. When Hannah asked God for a child, she vowed she would give her child back over to God as a Nazarite if he would answer her prayers. To quote again Sidney Gerdonis, today in church we still make vows to God. When we marry in church, we promise before God to live together as husband and wife till death do us part. When we present our children for baptism, we promise to instruct them in the Christian faith and lead them in Christian discipleship. When we are ordained as officers in the church, we promise to fulfill this calling faithfully. And in a surprising number of hymns, we make promises to God. For example, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end, and Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, and teach me, O Lord, your way of truth, and from it I will not depart. The point is, we must keep these promises if we are indeed to worship God with reverence and awe, and not in vain. The teacher knows how prone we are to worship God in vain, to vow and not fulfill, to speak many words and not realize what we are saying, to babble and manipulate to get God to do what we want, to give and only enrich ourselves. Because we are so prone to do this, the teacher concludes, therefore stand in awe of God. That is, fear God. Fear God, who not only is terribly angry with the sins we commit and threatens them with punishment, but is also deeply pained by them who suffered and died for them who endured the torture of the cross for them. In short, fear the God who loves you, who died for you, who rose for you, who reigns in heaven for you, who prays for you, so that you may worship him in spirit and in truth. Fear God so that you may glorify him and enjoy him forever. Thanks for listening. My next sermon will be on Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 and Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the Fourth Commandment.